Hey pals, welcome to Team Up Moves. I'm Fiona. And I'm Stephanie, and this is the podcast where we play superhero role-playing games and then talk about them. And we played Sentinel Comics, the role-playing game, and now we are going to talk about Sentinel Comics, the role-playing game. This is a game that is a collaboration between Greater Than Games and Critical Hit Studios. And so the full credits are Christopher Bedell, Cam Banks, Dave Chalker, Philippe Antoine Menard, all designed and developed this one. And here to talk about it with us are our guests from the game. So you may remember them as Horatio Holm, the timekeeper, Cece Mancuso. Welcome back to Team Up Moves. How you doing? I'm so excited to talk about this game. I have been thinking about it pretty much nonstop since we did our actual play. Oh my goodness. So very, very pumped for this conversation. Oh, yes. Excellent. Excellent. Am I introducing Ian? Yeah, why don't you do that? Okay. I would like to introduce, uh, you may remember the weird sister, either from Shakespeare's Scottish play or from our game uh, where she was performed and operated by Ian Gregory. Hi, Ian. How you doing? I'm doing great. I like the idea that I operated a character because it makes me sound more like a mech pilot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that seems accurate to this game, honestly, but I may be getting ahead of myself. (laughs) I love that. Now we're going to start the discussion the way we always do in the back matter, and that is to go to the origin story. Talk about character creation, GM prep. So I want to start with you, Cece. The Sentinel Comics character creation is is pretty dang cool, I think I can say. And maybe you can kind of like walk through like what you did in making in making Timekeeper. Of course, yeah. So I will say that this is a game that has a fantastic and rather mind-blowing number of options. And in approaching making Timekeeper, I used the built-in guided method for character creation in this game, which I think is a real boon to new players who are approaching what is a very extensive system meant to capture a wide variety of heroes and kind of giving you just a, a little taste, a way to dip your toe in without being overwhelmed by all of those options. So that's indeed what I did uh, to put together Timekeeper. Character creation is a seven-step process I won't go through each step in in great detail, but I will say that the way that uh, this game breaks down character creation is into sort of four broad categories and then a few extra decisions on top of that. We start with rolling up a background, which tells us who our character was before they started superheroing. Notable in the randomization in the character creation portion of this game is the fact that you roll a dice pool and then you have the flexibility to choose options that match the number of any of those die or the combination of any of those die. So that gives you, depending on the dice pool, two, three, five, sometimes a few more options, but it's still quite a manageable number considering there are usually up to 20 different options for each of these steps of character creation. Yeah, I think that's that's a nice way of of kind of winnowing that down, right? It's it's not just you roll the die and that's the one thing, but again as you say, it's you don't have to go through all 20. Exactly. And indeed, I didn't read through each of them before I rolled so that I wouldn't get too attached to any particular one. Oh, there you go. That's good pro tip. <laughs> and will the will the die to to turn up that. And I think in, at each step, I got a pretty good variety, and, and I can give you a sense of that. Even just in the, the background step, that first step of who was my character before they were superheroing, I got unremarkable, so total um, mundane person who had no real reason to then become a superhero. I got law enforcement, 
pretty classic for a number of heroes. And then I got retired, um, which is ultimately the option that I elected for Horatio. So despite his being somewhere in the mid to late 20s, he is retired from superheroing for various reasons. Um, I thought that was a fun <laughs> background archetype to play with. As you proceed through the different steps of character creation, we re-roll uh, somewhat randomly to determine our character's power source, where they derive their superheroic powers from. We roll somewhat randomly to decide their archetype, which is more or less their role in battle in this game, what kind of combat role they play, and then into uh, rolling randomly for personality, how they relate to other characters, especially other characters within the squad, within the team. At each of those steps, there's a, a really interesting level of interconnection between each step. So depending on which background you choose, you will then roll a slightly different collection of dice to choose your power source. You might be rolling a d6, a d8, a d10. You might be rolling two d10s and a d6. It's a slightly different set of randomization elements depending on what you choose. Um, and each step builds on the previous step. So this is not a swap in, swap out character system. This is a system in which each step is hugely dependent on the steps that you've already taken. Yeah. And at each of those steps, you're filling in, picking some of those qualities and powers that we heard in the actual play. And sometimes it'll be pick a mental quality or pick a physical power and that kind of thing. And then the other thing that, that you can do, and I think this is really cool and really interesting, is when you get to the abilities, they give you kind of the rules for an ability, but there's always a like, a like a blank in the middle where you can pick the power or the quality that is going to kind of fit for your ability and for your character concept. And so I want to actually ask Ian, do you have Weird Sister... What what were some of those abilities that came out from from this character creation, from melding that kind of rule description that the game gives you with a particular power or quality that you had at that step? So, I think it's it, I think I may have done this wrong, not mechanically, but in spirit, because oh no, when I got my background roles, I had three options: I could go tragic, law enforcement, or anachronistic, which is like the time traveler option. I dismissed mm -hmm. tragic because I thought. You know, that doesn't really fit the the mood of the podcast. Um, and yet <laughs> I, I picked I didn't want to do law enforcement because I don't like that. Uh, and then I was like, well, what kind of time traveler do I want to play? And I'm like, not really from the future because I don't like tech superheroes. And so I tried to think of and so I unfortunately sort of uncovered the idea for playing the one of the witches from Macbeth at like phase one of character creation. And then I was doing the opposite of what Cece said, where I was basically like then trying to make all my other options that I rolled sort of narrow into this concept for a character I thought would be funny to play, which is the witch from Macbeth uh, in a superhero setting. Which was wonderful, and we love her, <laughs> and it was amazing. I, I, I thought it worked out. For what it's worth, I think I may have done something more like what Ian did in terms of the first few roles told me who I wanted Mona to be, and then I was just kind of picking out details. Yeah, and I feel like I kind of got... I got lucky on my next role where nature was one of my options. I'm like, easy peasy. Now I'll pick the nature power source because that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then when it came to archetype, my options, I felt like the game had suddenly pulled the rug under me. And if I were more sort of um, willing to adapt, it might have been something very cool. But it was like, do you want to have a powered super suit? as your archetype <laughs> or do you want to be a shapeshifter and i was like well i guess i have to be a shapeshifter even though i don't really want to play a shapeshifter and 
boy, is this complicated. <laughs> it's like one of the <laughs> most complicated archetypes in the book. But shape-shifting witches are cool. They were, but unfortunately, it sort of leads you into being a physical combatant, uh, where you're like, yeah. what am I? I'm shape-shifting into a variety of animals who are going to hit people very hard. And all of a sudden, all this magic stuff I'm doing felt very, like, secondary to the character, despite the character being a witch. Oh, interesting. And mm. I'm like, oh, I guess I turn into a werewolf, uh, and I have wolf claws, but I want to be doing magic, but none of the abilities that are being offered to me are very magical. You know, it's interesting. I think I felt a little bit of that. And there was a certain up-in-the-airness about home right up until the end, because I had two very different images that were kind of springing in my mind based on the first three roles that I made, background, power source, archetype which were either that Holm was going to be this, you know, late 20s, wisecracking, terminally incapable of taking anything seriously, maybe a little broken kind of character that he actually ended up being, or this kind of grizzled, middle-aged, done with the superhero life and yet being dragged back in against his will, uh, kind of stoic, taciturn character. And ultimately, I thought that the former would do better on a podcast. Mm -hmm. In general, I try and not make a habit of playing characters who don't like to talk when it's a, an audio medium. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Appreciate that but one. But it was right up until the personality step that I was like, I wonder which one of these things home is going to be. And it was only at the personality step that I said, okay, this is going to be this character. But then I had to go back and through that tangle of interconnected decisions, had to make sure everything I had done up to that point was consistent with the idea of home being this kind of mission mischievous trickster character incapable of taking anything seriously. And in doing that, I ran up against the issue of one of the core elements of Holm as a character is that his powers come from this relic that allows him to see into the future. And especially once I got the archetype marksman as an option, I was like, this makes total sense. He can see into the future, so he's really good at lining up shots, right? Mm -hmm. he, he can predict where people are going to be, and in so doing, he's, he's good at what he does, right? And yet, the kind of order in which the qualities and the powers came on my sheet ended up creating a situation where, more often than not, Holm was actually attacking with banter, which is basically just like vicious mockery, just like four, four different kinds of vicious mockery, mm -hmm. as opposed to, I think there's actually only one or two moves on his entire sheet that actually have to do with precognition, which is the power that I had originally anticipated his marksman skills coming from. So that was kind of interesting. I don't think I was annoyed or upset by that so much as that. I just found it interesting that the order could be such that maybe that vision that you had started to put together, you still had to kind of amend that. Yeah. This is a system that gives you starting choices that are very, like, you've always got options, but they're very constrained. And so you end up creating or coming up with a character type that you wouldn't have expected. And then as you move through the process, you have further constraints that might complicate or conflict with or simply contradict the initial vision that was generated by the earlier constraints. And if it works out well, you've got a character who you enjoy playing who you would never have come up with on your own. And if it doesn't work out well, you have a character who doesn't make any sense and then you have to go back up the tree and start again. Which I think is what's helpful about some of the final stages of character creation. So there are, I think, two points in character creation that were intentionally included as a way of mitigating this sense of I've been steered away from my original vision. 
One of those is the inclusion of an invitation to create a custom quality for your hero that captures something unique to your hero that would power one of their abilities, one or more of their abilities. Mm -hmm. And that feels like an opportunity to say, okay, that thing that you haven't managed to roll yet, you can put that here, whatever that is, right? And regardless of whether it's actually a named thing in the text. And then the other mechanic of character creation that I think is meant to help with this is the idea of the retcon, which is the last more or less the last step of character creation, wherein you have the opportunity to, to switch w- basically one thing about your sheet that feels like it's, it's maybe off or is strategically not ideal. Uh, you can like maybe switch dice values between two different qualities. You can swap in something, an, an option that you didn't actually roll for an option that you did or uh, getting an extra ability, right? This, this little opportunity to kind of pad out the sheet with something that you felt was missing or just kind of make that tiny tweak that makes it make a little more sense. And that definitely helped with that issue for me when I was creating Timekeeper. Yeah, no, so cer- certainly in, in Sentinel Comics, you don't have to do this. You can actually just go through and pick from each step you know, from each table, kind of which one you want. And and that can be very sort of satisfying its own thing. I have a, a post I'll link to. Uh, I made the unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Huzzah. No surprise there. And she came out amazingly using this system. I definitely asked you all to do the guided one to sort of put it through its paces. And actually, because I knew Stephanie, you in particular, this is going very against how you tend to approach character creation. Yeah. So... I want to know how how it came together for you with Mona. I love this process and I would go through it again. And the thing is, this the guided character creation process takes you a place you would never want to go and then strands you there and gives you, you know, one raft, one chance to get off the island if you don't like it there. And if you go through this process when you're preparing to play this game and you don't like the character you made, make another one. I kept track not only as I always do of the you know, prose story of this character and the the qualities of the character sheet, I kept track of the process. And yeah, it took me some places. I rolled and I had a choice of upper class, struggling and adventurer. And I chose upper class and chose the principle of business. I had not played an entrepreneur before and I thought that would be fun and made sense with an upper class background. And so I knew that I was going to have someone who had some kind of, uh, you know, for-profit interest that she wanted to pursue Mm. while she was superheroing. And I rolled for Power Source, and I had a choice of artificial being, training, nature, and powered suit. And at that point, I pretty much knew what I wanted to do, which was to create the anti-Tony Stark. Somebody who has powers based on something that she invented that she's extremely serious about that can, in fact save the world if only enough people invest in it and buy into it and start using it, and who is a superhero, not because her business lets her do anything she wants, but because she really wants to promote her business, which in fact, like, would be great if it succeeded. And I was very happy with where that came from. It was taking me somewhat out of my, you know, usual range of, you know, performers and teenagers, basically. Mona could not, for example, talk to animals. No. So I then went through and I was happy with the way that the system allowed me to design within certain constraints a personality for Mona, who was impulsive and devoted to her business and kind of had this other drive to find her partner, who was the real brains behind the enterprise. Mm -hmm. 
and I built in a whole bunch of music in jokes because that's what I do. Uh, all of the names for things involved around Mona herself is named for Maxwell's demon, the principle that in physics education, Maxwell's demon sorts molecules into faster and slower and thus creates heat exchange. B. Miller and the Miller Compound and the Regenus Rain Company are named for uh, Scott Miller from the band Game Theory, who we lost a number of years ago and who was a superhero in a way. So I, I kept doing this and I, I loved where it was taking me and then I didn't love where it was taking me, which was after I built a powered suit with temperature transfer abilities and you know, fine-tuned that, I rolled for archetype. Mm -hmm. I got physical powerhouse like the Hulk punching people, marksman, which didn't make any sense. Psychic, which didn't make any sense. Flyer, which I could have done, but I didn't want to. <laughs> and then armored. So I ended up with a powered armored suit. And then I had to work and honestly get a couple of lifelines from Fiona in order to avoid creating redundant or improperly overlapping powers. And I ended up sort of required by the system and the classification of powers that come with the archetype required to make her a wall crawler and then to do a bunch of technical stuff involving green abilities and yellow abilities. And I was happy with the result and with the way this system constrains you and makes you create someone you would never have created. I would do it again. But uh, so I, I do want to keep I mean, again, character creation is is a, a big part. So I do want to linger maybe a little bit longer on origin story than, than we tend to. Ian, Sentinel Comics, the role playing game champions, two very different approaches. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, I wanted to play with you again in any game. But one of the reasons why I asked you specifically to be back on this show, uh, for this show, this run in particular, is to kind of help us look at that in these two very different ways of, of building a character. Yeah, I mean, I have an instructional anecdote and dramatic reveal already for this, which is that Ursula Weird Sister was not the first character I tried to make. Ooh. I saw that everyone else was doing this sort of assigned role creation, mm -hmm. you know, following the rules. So I thought, I'm just going to try to make a character top to bottom like I would in any other game. Also because I had thought of a really funny character idea on the train, and I wanted to see if I could play it for this session. So I was like, all right, I want to play Dr. Galen, whose power is the four classical humors. And he can vomit up yellow bile, black bile, blood, or phlegm, and each <laughs> has a different effect. <laughs> <laughs> he's a doctor. There's an irony in the fact that he's a doctor, and yet he has an alternative medicine system, so he's healing people, and he's constantly saying, the four humors are not real. Go see a real medical professional. <laughs> um, I, what you're doing right here is is you're you're earning yourself another ticket to to be back, right? because uh, we got we to see this doctor. Dr. Galen's still on the brain. I, I had this funny idea where he would buff people with one, and he would heal with another, and one would be acid. Like, a pretty wide range of powers, which I thought made sense, because it looked like in this system, you end up with a lot of green, yellow, and red abilities. You sort of, every character does a lot of stuff. Yeah. So then I go through, and I'm like, okay, background, doctor, power source, maybe mystical, right? He's been blessed by a Greek god, and now he's stuck with the ancient Greek medicine system. And then I got to archetype, and there was not a single archetype that made any sense whatsoever for this character. Interesting. There's no supporter archetype. There's no healer or medic archetype. It's all very main character-y. It's sort of under the assumption that your hero can do their own fighting without any teammates. 
Uh, all of the archetypes involved are like physical powerhouse, shadows, speedster, elemental manipulation. Like, I'm like, these are all too big in a way. Hmm. And then when I, I was like, well, let me just go look at the list of powers. And healing isn't a power. Buffing someone, enhancing someone isn't a power. These are all effects you get by choosing green, yellow, and red abilities. But when you're looking at the list of powers for you to roll your dice with, there's nothing that really made any sense for this character to be there. Maybe I could have taken something and totally reflavored it. But at that point, you're working so far outside the system that it felt very counterproductive to the point of the session, which is to show the system, you know, as written. Right. So I sort of rolled it back and I put Dr. Galen on the shelf and I was like, I guess I'll just make a character. I felt that the creation in that way was fine, but I was sort of frustrated that I had a great idea and then... I couldn't make it happen in the system. It just felt like the way the, the powers shook out, the archetypes shook out, the game really has a certain way it wants you to play, and it sort of obscures other ways of playing from you. Mm-hmm. This game really wants every hero to be able to take their own turn in combat, which makes sense since it's derived from a card game. Okay, I'll, I'll table this later, but I actually think that this is somewhat counterintuitive to how the card game actually works. And I, I would agree with you in that case, yes. One of the things also as well, you know, I think, sort of different from what we do see in Champions is that the different powers and the different qualities that are listed in the rules have no individual mechanism behind each one. That that if you have flight, you have narrative permission to fly, but there isn't any particular rule around, okay, you can move this many spaces or this distance because you have this particular ability. It could be called, you know, levitation. It could be called, you know, it's, like it's, it's, it's only that once you pair that keyword description that they kind of give you examples of with some of those templated abilities that sort of it, that together kind of makes the rule. And so then, you know, that, that does feel kind of somewhat different from champions where in some ways in champions, you're looking like, all right, what is the effect that I want? Let me customize it with all of this math. And then kind of, later on then sort of saying what causes it. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm really going anywhere here, but um, certainly took a lot less time. We'll give it that. <laughs> I've, I, I, can, I can go somewhere. Sure, sure, please do. This, this game and Champions both have a lot of math, but in Champions, the purpose of the math is to simulate the real world, to find out how many PSI your underwater character can withstand or exactly how fast you're going in space. and. In Sentinel Comics, the role-playing game, the math simulates contests between heroes and villains or anti-heroes or answers questions about whether you get what you want in the fiction, but it is not meant to simulate real-world effects. There's no sort of fake superhero science about like exactly how hot the lava is. You just find out whether you have overcome the lava. I just want to say, I think that Sentinels is in a very weird place with character creation, where by being guided like this, it's almost a life path character creation system. Mm -hmm. It's almost Traveler, Star Trek, the RPG, Weaver Dice, which really ask the player to think backstory, then powers, then equipment, like, and then at the end of it, you sort of told this whole story to yourself and you are enamored of your character regardless of the outcome because you've, you kind of, life path character creation tricks you into caring about the character you create, even if you would have never set out to create them. Sentinel sort of, I think it stops halfway. It gets you to think about the background, think about the archetype, the powers, and then it sort of gets off and says, like, and now, like, mess around a lot with all of these little options. 
I think it would be better served by locking the player in more, giving them less options and sort of guiding them down the path to a completed character, Hmm. or pulling back more and saying, here, you've now thought of a character. Now go to the powers page and pick out all the powers you want. Like, Mm. instead of sort of going halfway and saying, here's your background. Now pick one power and one blank. Now pick from this list of this things. I think it should commit more fully to locking the player in or giving them creative guidance, but then stepping away mechanically. Unfortunately, where it is right now, I felt like I was constantly fighting with the system to do the things I wanted to do with my character. All right. Well, I do want to, before we get out of this section, talk a little bit about the GM prep side of Sentinel Comics. And so I put a, I put a handful of things together ahead of this. One of the categories is the environment. So I made an environment for... Uh, the Grand's Meadow with Volcano inside. And looking through in the environment, you kind of come up with, okay, for when we're in the green, when we're in the yellow, when we're in the red, what are some minor twists that could happen? What's a major twist that could happen in each area? And kind of have those prepared. And the book sort of talks about the escalating level of danger that should be going on, you know, as you as you move through the zones. And then as as part of that, we saw in in some of the twists, I had minions and lieutenants. And this is a part of Sentinel Comics that I super appreciate as a GM. When we did Champions, there was Larry the Hench, right? And it's Mm -hmm. like Larry the Hench had a dang character sheet and action points and all of that, you know, mass. Yeah. Whereas here, you know, Flame Jane is a D10. And I think I gave her, a, you know, one special ability, that kind of thing. But I kind of knew her as a character. I know her very well as a character. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> this iteration of her is a little different. But 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 sort of mechanically, it's like, okay, she's this die size. And then, you know, maybe a little special ability. And, and so the minions, the, the lava worms were D6s and they had kind of their own, maybe one special ability. And, and that's it. And I really appreciated that because it meant that it was less to do. It was a lot of stuff that I didn't have to do that I wouldn't need anyway. And also what I really appreciate is that you could come up with this stuff on the fly. If there is a more improvisational part of the story, you could bring in a bunch of minions. You could bring in, you know, some lieutenants. They're sort of these mid-range superpowered people into the story, just like immediately. Just pick a die, maybe think about like a little twist that they might have on some of the actions and you're really good to go. The final piece was Captain Blap. And I will say that in their language, Blep is not adorable. But it's just one of those coincidences. <laughs> Truly fearsome, I'm sure. Absolutely. It's, it's a false cognate, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. And the rulebook actually has a very, you know, very reduced kind of way of doing the villains that but that still sort of mirrors the way the heroes are made. That you you pick an approach for the villain and it lists out a good number of approaches and sort of suggests some powers, suggests some qualities. Uh, yeah, I should say that that Captain Blap and, and villains of this level do have a full set of powers and qualities and, and a way of doing a status die. So they, they roll three dice when they act. And so their approach gives you some abilities and some hints, and then you pick an archetype for them. And she was a overlord archetype because she sort of had a kind of a, a group of minions that she was directing. And, and that gave me a, a picture of her. And 
I did appreciate being able to get some mechanisms for free. So by being prideful, it meant that she wanted to just attack one person, pick the strongest, defeat them, show how she was awesome. And we were able to get that in her tussle with a weird sister. And then that meant that she had the ability of like being able to defend as she's fighting a single individual. So overall, as these things go, I was pretty delighted with the NPC creation for being fairly straightforward and but then giving me either some rich things to work with for free in uh, with a major villain or just some real quick stuff for the minions of lieutenants the environment i think was maybe a little more hit and miss and i, I think that we'll we'll get into that when we get into the letters page to i think talk more generally about how how action scenes in sentinel comics come together mm-hmm. so let's make that transition letters page time Ian, I want to start with you with that opening question. What is Sentinel Comics, the role-playing game, trying to do? I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, at some level, I think it's it's trying to reproduce some elements of the Sentinel of the Multiverse card game. But I would argue that it does so mainly on a surface level. The inclusion of the environment, for example, the sort of boss enemy with minions. Otherwise, the main goal of the game seems to be sort of efficient character creation, characters you can sort of plug and play in any composition. There's none of that weirdness that happens in D&D where you've got a team of four fighters mm. or you get to the end and you say, boy, I really need a cleric. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it, so it tries to give every character a way to interact with every phase of the game. Every character can solve, do skill checks. Every character can, can support their teammates. Every character can fight. And I think in doing so, it kind of gets away from that first premise, which is that this is based on an existing card game that already exists and actually is sort of trying to do the opposite of a lot of what this role-playing game tries to do. So, Steph, would you say that Sentinel Comics is successful? I mean, I had fun playing it. It's, I I mean, I did too. I would absolutely choose to play it again with this group, but I wouldn't choose to play it again. Mm -hmm. You can absolutely use this system to tell a fun superhero story that has character beats and emotional character growth and fun combat. And if that's the bar for success, then yes, it's successful. However, I found it frustrating. Mm -hmm. I found it frustrating in a couple of ways that really boil down to its being very tactically oriented. It is a, a, a game that benefits from the kind of strategic thinking about how you win in a contest using probability math that I associate with war gamers and with certain kinds of like high skill level board games that's not unheard of in role playing games, but that that I tend not to gravitate to. Yeah. It, it's a game that benefits in character creation from thinking about what dice you want to put where from realizing far in advance that if you have a d6 ability it means you're never actually going to be able to do the thing it it benefits from calculating in advance using the kind of look ahead i associate with board gaming uh, about you know where are you going to use a boost and when do you want to give up your, your turn to do something right away in order to be able to succeed at doing something two turns later it benefits from that kind of tactical thinking and it in the sense that it encourages and rewards that kind of tactical thinking, it is successful in in doing that. And that, to my mind, makes it less successful in 
simulating my favorite superhero comics either on the, you know, what is it like to fire a laser beam simulationist level, which champions whatever its flaws does, or at the emotional level of like, let's tell a story where we think about character and motivation. And I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to sit on that and, 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 and actually CC kind of bring you in on this. One of the things I feel about with Sentinel Comics is it seems to be in a place between powered by the apocalypse type things that, that extra narrative kind of approach dice just, you know, it's, it tells you which way the story goes. And as Stephanie, you know, Steph mentioned kind of that, that simulationist thing, it is in the middle mm-hmm. in the way that narrative things end up being mechanized, right? I'm like, hey, there's, there's an aviary full of birds and people. It takes three successes to clear out birds, one success to clear out the people. How does that work for you? Is this a good, happy, fun spot in the middle, or are we almost a worst of both worlds between the narrativist and simulationist sides? I think it depends on what part of the scene we're talking about, and also the element of character creation. I think in character creation, it feels really empowering to be able to say, my character, it's not just that my character can fly or shoot laser laser beams out of their eyes, it's that they can fly because they believe in themselves. Or they can shoot laser beams out of their eyes because, I don't know, like they're made of like a rare element. Mm-hmm. That element, I think, of the customization feels really empowering and fruitful. And it really does help you understand who this character is, why they do what they do, and feel like you have some of those kind of like talking points, those quirks that are nonetheless meaningful and not just arbitrary by which to define your character. I think where the rubber meets the road and we actually get into, we're in a scene, there's a turn order that is determined by the players and here are all the entities moving in the scene and all acting at once. I think that's where it kind of falls down a little bit. Only because I think in an effort to make sure that no one character feels overpowered, I feel like And this could just have been a function of the fact that I don't think we rolled many super successes in our game, Mm -hmm. but it kind of felt like there was a nat 20 element kind of missing from our scenes. The sense that if we really succeeded and succeeded and exceeded expectations, that we could then like shortcut some of those. Well, it takes three, but you you just did it because you're that good at talking to birds, right? I don't think we had any of those moments. In certain, in certain moments, it did kind of come down to paperwork. And I think we, we spent a certain amount of time, even just on air in the actual play, talking about, okay, who's going to do what? Because we feel responsible for every part of the scene. We need to hoover up all the check marks before we can close out the scene. Mm-hmm. It felt less about what organically our characters would do and more about like whose character is most likely to go pursue that set of three check marks that is now becoming a really dire situation. I think that was kind of a tip off for me that maybe we were in the middle of a scene and a conflict portions of the game. It, it kind of sometimes felt like a worst of both worlds, unfortunately. Yeah. And what's actually kind of interesting, I think, you know, talking about those check marks is say hoovering them up. One of the things and and I feel like the pacing of that opening scene, it went on longer than I was expecting. But when I was writing out, okay, how, what, what do I need them to do? All right, well, I want them to rescue some people. There's this thing with, okay, why is the volcano here? And that was going to kick off the thing about, okay, there's the note that future home leaves and, and kind of that piece to get to the next part of the story. And so what I was worried about is once we sort of saw the check marks 
And you could look on it and say like, okay, it would take us this many successes to find where the device is, this many successes to get to it, and this many to disable it. Why don't we just do that and not bother with the people? Like you could have done that. And so my original thought was, oh, maybe it's like one check mark for each. You could have actually, if you had just committed to that and thought very sort of board gamey, kind of pulling out tactically, you could have knocked through that scene before we got to the yellow. And I didn't want that to happen, right? I also want these other things to kind of be in place. I'm like, okay, well, let's make let's make it a little bit harder to find the volcano device and, and that way we can we can get to some of these other aspects of it. But then I think what happened, I guessed wrong. And you then went, no, we have to save everybody and all of that. And then you kind of didn't go harder on, okay, why is this happening in the first place? Mm -hmm. And then that, that sort of dragged it out. Can I just say, I think one thing that I found interesting about that was that we almost immediately in that scene split up as a team and we all went to tackle totally different problems. <laughs> and I think that scene would have run very differently if it was, okay, this small crew has been dispatched, we have arrived, we're working together, we're making a beeline for the volcano because clearly that's the biggest threat here. And if we can just get that under control, everything else will fall into place. It almost felt like the system was asking us to split up. And I think that that's a reflection of what people have already said about each character being able to hold their own, being able to interact with every single part of the system by themselves. It kind of encouraged us to like split up and run our own little sub scenes where someone was saving the birds, someone was down in the subway, someone was trying to figure out how to disable this device. It's interesting to think about that considering that this builds itself so heavily as being a team superhero RPG, the fact that we were kind of in that montage space of everybody's in a different part of the scene dealing with a different threat. I don't think that's untrue to superhero comics. Indeed, I think that's pretty core to the idea of a superhero fight. It's kind of the the Troy walking into the burning room with the boxes of pizza, and there's just like eight <laughs> different things going on. And you're like, okay, you, you go handle that. I'm going to handle this. And then you all kind of come back together at the end and see how it all went. But it was interesting to me that that's how it worked. This isn't necessarily a system in which I felt like we had a ton of opportunities for collaboration between our powers. Yeah, that's partly because each hero has so many powers and each hero is combat ready. It, it's it's also, I think, I think if all of the challenges had been like if we were fighting a team of supervillains it might have felt different because the classic thing to do when you have a team of superheroes fighting like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is you realize after a couple of rounds of inconclusive combat that you need to switch opponents <laughs> or team up on one opponent. Yeah. But when you have three or four different people who are innocents who are going to get killed by a subway train or a falling plane or Dr. Doom, you can't just trolley problem it. I mean, I guess we could have, but we didn't create we happen to create characters who were not willing to trolley problem this. I think at its best, this kind of a system encourages something like, I'm thinking of the concept of action-oriented monsters, which is introduced by Matt Colville in the con in the, the realm of, of 5e D&D, &D, mm -hmm. which is that you, you shouldn't necessarily create a stat block, even in a game like D&D, which encourages you to, 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 to fully stat out every single antagonist, right? Every single mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. creature that's going to be working against your protagonist. Even in a game like that, you shouldn't necessarily stat them fully out in the traditional sense. You should mostly focus on when they have 100% of their health, what are they doing? When they are at 50% of their, their health, what are they doing? What are their priorities? How have they changed? And how is that changing their behavior? When they're down to their last 10% of their health, are they... 
acting out of self-preservation? Are they acting out of frustration and lashing out? Like thinking through the emotional consequences of being at a certain stage in a conflict and then mechanizing that and saying, okay, this is what's going to happen now that they're at this stage. They're going to react in this way, so I'm going to make a mechanic for that. I think at its best, it creates this beautiful arc for the scene, and it really gives a, a nice guide for role-playing as far as how to make sure that that scene builds in a really satisfying way as far as the threat levels and you're kind of putting out fires just a little bit faster than they can start themselves. There's something really beautiful about that. But I think also there were those moments of, I really want to use this power, but it's in the red zone and we're in the yellow. So I can't use that yet. Or like, well, I could use a green power here. That feels like it's the most narratively satisfying option. But actually, these powers further down the list are more mechanically sound uh, decisions right now because they they help me with action economy. So I'm going to use this other power, right? A couple of times I felt like I ran into situations where either, I, yes, I did not have access to the power that made the most sense or was the most useful for that situation. Or my character felt like she simply couldn't do something. There were problems involving lava where I was like, what do I do about this? Or there are problems involving technology where I think, I guess I throw it out the window because I don't have like a quality that makes sense here. or I don't have a combination of power and quality that makes sense here, which is a lot to ask. I think in a system like Champions sort of mitigates this game time confusion by giving the player like a truly unprecedented amount of control over their own character. By the time you get done with character creation and champions, you've really thought about every dimension you can think of with your character. You've put points into everything. And when you get into that situation, you think, well, my character's just not doing this. In a game like Fate or Powered by the Apocalypse, they mitigate this problem by giving players a lot of game time control, where the character mm -hmm. sheet matters less than, say, I've got a Fate point to spend and I can just make things happen to make this scene work, to make another character arrives to give me the thing I need to make this development occur that I need to happen so that the scene runs right. By landing in the middle, where you have a ton of powers and you have all this character creation, but also you're sort of running on this fate, overcome, boost, attack, defend. Yeah. It, it creates a confusion where you think, I have a lot of powers, but none of them seem to work right because I didn't actually pick them. I sort of picked them off a list and I don't have real control over the scene because I'm relying on this sort of weird character creation, I don't have full access to the character I made, right? You don't have everything you made available at all times. Mm -hmm. It created a lot of situations where I felt, uh-oh, like the thing I want to do isn't either isn't available or it doesn't make sense. And I have to sort of talk to the team about like, do you think I can justify doing this? That's not a really fun way to stop and be like, do you think I can get away with using this quality on this situation? <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting that, that, that that's sort of your reaction. Because when I think about like what Weird Sister did in the volcano scene of tunneling as a giant toad mm -hmm. or coming across this time device and being able to like do a spell, which, which worked really well, you know, and sort of fit. And then just like throwing it out the window. Like I loved those actions. Me too. And so the other thing that I would, you know, not to, not to necessarily like Monday morning quarterback, or I don't know what the metaphor is. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tuesday morning, I don't know, Monday night football, how does this work? <laughs> but isn't the there are some things your character can't necessarily do? Doesn't that bring the team together? Sure. I think I think I I think maybe my frustration was that I thought I had made a mystical character. Yeah. And when it came time to do that spell thing, I was like, I actually don't have a power that works here because there's no magic power. I'm like, I need to break this magical barrier. Something an experienced my experienced old witch can totally do. I have a great quality for this, but I have no power that applies. So I have to roll a d4. 
that felt very silly. Yeah. It, I think that's another place where this game kind of lands halfway in between because mm-hmm. there is a mechanic for that. If it's not a power that's listed, or I should say using the parlance of the game, if it's not an ability that's explicitly listed on your sheet, you can always just pick a quality, pick a power, use your status die, and roll. But given, again, the action economy of the game, the relative efficacy of those actions, it's almost never strategically worth it to try and do something that's not on your character sheet. So it is an option in a way that might stifle someone else, the opportunity for someone else to come in and say, I'm going to do that because that's my area of expertise. It's just enough of an option to stifle that, but it's not enough of an option, I think, for it to be always effective as a choice. And I think that because I did not fully choose my character, right? And I, yeah. because I was picking from a list, I ended up with a character sheet that had like eight different attacks on it and nothing else. Yeah. And I'm like, boy, why is my old problem-solving witch from Macbeth only capable of hitting things in various ways? Like, mm-hmm. I really wish they'd given me some different options to like... Yeah, I mean, that's maybe that's what Macbeth is like in this universe. <laughs> like, we actually haven't read New Arcade yeah copy of Macbeth. There could be a lot more werewolves. I felt like either you let the player be really flexible in the moment, which the game doesn't because it makes you pick a power and a quality or from your action list, or you let the player really pick a character creation, everything they want their person to be able to do. I think like mm-hmm. if the game had at one point said to me, do you want from this list of powers just magic? I would have said, yes, please. Like that's exactly what I want. Yeah. But that never came up. And so I didn't have it. And it created a, a very narratively dissonant moment. I think we're seeing two different problems here. One it has to do with the way that the guided constrained character creation interacts with the tactical element of the game where you can do something that's just roll, just D6, but you shouldn't because you'll fail. Mm-hmm. And the other is a problem that has to do, that, that applies across gaming systems that has to do with how magic is handled because the default way we think about superhero stories is a kind of tech science, Fantastic Four, Superman, sort of fake science way where the power is very tightly described and constrained by some ultimately made up scientific numbers. And magic is the opposite of that. And magic heroes in anything other than an extremely narrative powered by the apocalypse kind of situation are... I think harder to design and harder to control and harder to predict. And this is the reason why so many Doctor Strange comics end up just being a lot of psychedelic art. <laughs> because an extremely powerful punching hero can punch things and you know exactly what the Hulk can do. An extremely powerful Doctor Strange can literally do anything. And what's the GM going to do if you can just magic anything? I'm not saying this is an insurmountable problem. I'm saying this is a problem unique to designing magic systems and superhero universes. And I'm not sure it is especially a problem with this system as opposed to others. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you put a problem in front of Doctor Strange. He just has to go read the right book to solve it, right? Yeah. It it, it does create sort of an open-ended issue. And I think that that's why when you look at this list of powers, which I'm looking at right now, you've got elemental control and you can control plants and you have telepathy and telekinesis but nowhere on here does it these are all in some ways expressions of powers yeah and and i think the magic ends up being being the flavor Mm -hmm. on top of it right it's that you have magic to control plants you have magic to do telepathy versus any other things cc you mentioned action economy and and steph you mentioned earlier math (laughs) i want to sort of pitch my secret theory about this game and 
it's that the math is, I don't necessarily think the math is complicated in the sense of you're adding a lot of things, though I think it, it maybe gets a little fiddly once we start bringing in bonuses and stuff. But I think the thing to be aware of in this game is that the probability is incredibly obfuscated. Because most of the time, if you're doing one of the basic actions, you're rolling three dice and you're taking the middle one. For overcome actions that match your one of your principles, you get to take the max die. But we don't necessarily have a great sense of if I've got this, you know, D10, D8, D6, and I'm rolling it, what do I even expect to come out of that? Is this a good roll? Is this a bad roll? Mm-hmm. Which is very different from 2D6 plus two or, or a D20 plus a modifier. And so this is like my grand theory of some of our struggles with this game. <laughs> so we have complicated, obfuscated math. Then there's the question of action economy. It feels like almost a waste of your turn to be like, I'm going to spend it boosting, right? I'm not going to attack an enemy for damage. I'm not going to try to check off a box. Instead, I'm just going to roll my dice and give a plus one or a plus two to someone else. And I, and I think that, you know, we see that and we're like, ooh, that does, uh, that's a waste of a turn. Yeah. But a plus two is incredibly powerful, especially when someone is rolling D6s or, or maybe D8s. It changes the, I made a spreadsheet. <laughs> While you were all reading Macbeth, I was studying the spreadsheet. And Aww. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> so for example, like that, you know, like the, like the overcome role that, that Steph was doing a lot, it was a, 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 a 10, an eight and a six. If you take the max die, 40% of the time, you're going to get a clean success. But, but 56% of the time, you're going to get a minor twist. If you just add a plus two to that, now you get a minor twist only 25% of the time. The other 75% of the time, you're either getting a success or at the top 10%, you're getting a great success. And then we're going to be checking off multiple boxes. We're going to be giving boons off the min dice when that happens. And, and that's just from a plus two, which is the equivalent of the minor twist outcome. Like it's it's that level. If you wanted to boost to give someone a plus two, you know, you only need to to roll a max of seven. So I think that there is a secret weird action economy, which is if you're not necessarily paying attention to the modifiers, what ends up happening is you get those middle of the road rolls, which don't necessarily do a lot as far as overcoming, and then start firing off minor twists, which means you have more to deal with going forward, and now you're sapping your future actions. And so that's my theory. And that's like a lot, right? This is very board gamey. This is very tactically. This was not like, again, I made a spreadsheet. This did not come out us feeling out this system during play necessarily. But anyway, I'm, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that out there and sort of see who wants to respond to kind of my, my theory about how this game is trying to incentivize teamwork but it's going around it such a circuitous way, it's hard to notice. I think the real the real devil in the details here is the environment. Mm-hmm. Because every scene is on a timer, it fires off the little panic engine in the player's brain where they think, I only have 10 turns to make this whole scene happen. Yeah, yeah. Gotta check everything off or else innocent people will die on my watch. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So because you then are thinking, 
oh my gosh, I have to do something. I have to do something. I have to make progress. I have to do this. It causes you to think too much in terms of wasting time. It, it like Steph said, and like you just said, it makes you think of a board game. It makes you think of you're playing Zolkin and you know you've got eight spins of the clock before the game ends. And all of a sudden you're planning out where you're putting your corn on each turn. You know, that's fun when you're in the brain mode to play a game made by a bunch of German dudes. But <laughs> <laughs> when I'm sitting down with my friends to knock out some superhero action role-playing, it doesn't feel very good because all of a sudden you're not thinking about what is my character doing so much as you're thinking, what's the optimal play in this situation? How do I optimize my turn? Yeah. And then that creates situations where I think I said in the game, I know it would be optimal for me to go do this and solve this problem and behave in this way, but that makes no sense for my character. So I'm going to go take this this secondary action, which mm. feels bad because all of a sudden I feel like I'm losing and it's a role-playing game. That's not the point. Mm. <laughs> this game, I think, wants you to create characters who optimize in that way. I think it would be, if, if we were going to play this again, I would absolutely create a character who is an artificial being with like a computer brain where it was in character for this this hero to be constantly optimized. The utilitarabot. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, no. <laughs> it's also because of the timer and because in a superhero situation, there's so often, you know, innocence to save and you want to avoid having to be in a trolley problem situation and everything's burning down. I think it would be a very different game if you had six people on your team and one of them could just choose to boost, whereas playing this with a three-hero team, it seems like much more of a dangerous waste of time emotionally for someone to boost. And maybe that speaks to Ian's point going all the way back to character creation of there is not a support class in this game because theoretically any character should be capable of support. And with any sufficiently large team, it will be possible that any number of players within the team could then play that role. Yeah. I'm thinking of the famous panel in which I think Professor X says, what am I going to do with 14 X-Men? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is some of them are going to play a support role. Yeah. So I think the last bit I want to kind of do here is, Steph, to, to again call back to a point you brought up is, is Sentinel Comics telling the types of superhero stories that you want to tell? And I think that Sentinel Comics ends up being very opinionated. <laughs> All of its rules are around these action scenes. Yeah. It says, this is going to be the main thing that's going to happen in a Sentinel Comics story. You're going to be in an action scene. There's going to be things to fight, problems to solve. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be escalating from things are kind of fine to things are getting bad and then things are getting terrible. And if you fall off the end of the scene tracker, it's like real bad. And the world around you is going to be interacting with you. And I like that opinion in general. I think it's very dynamic. I think it's it's charting a good story. You know, you want to have things changing from turn to turn to keep the situation interesting. But it's also, that is, in some ways, it's only opinion. You can do other scenes. We got a montage scene that was great. You can do some sort of social scene stuff, but there aren't the rules behind it. And, and actually, and I'll just sort of make that one final point. This came up, I forget for whom this came up, we used a, a, a hack that I had heard. I, I, I'm going to attribute this to, I think, System Mastery. I heard it on, on their episode. It's great about this. Please listen to it. Okay. Where if you don't have an applicable power, just roll two of your qualities. Because there are many social things where it's like, okay, if I'm trying to convince someone to go on a date with me or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I say that and then I'm like, okay, but 
any NPC that I would play. It's like, yeah, I mean, like, if you're like, if you're like hanging out with Winter and you're like, whip out the giant claw, like, boom, that's dinner paid for. Um, but that's just me and my characters. So anyway, that was a bad example. But you understand the underlying thing that there's like, there are situations where you can't use your powers. And again, now I'm, now I'm looking over at Stephanie and being like, all right, well, this is now um, calling back to Armandine's supernatural life. At, at any rate, this game, long story short, I'll stop here, has an opinion. How do we feel about this opinion? Y'all are just thirsty for Claude people right now. I'm just like, we can just sit with that if you want. We can just... <laughs> I disagree with this opinion. You disagree, Steph? Yeah. This is a game that believes that the essence of superhero comics lies in certain kinds of multi-stage escalating combat scenes. And that is a common, reasonable, just fine opinion about what superhero comics are for. It's not why I read them. It's not why I love them. And my favorite long, escalating, multi-part combat scenes are always scenes where you learn something about the character we've been following, what kinds of choice they would make, and... Mm what their powers have to do with who they are and who they want to be and who they're growing into. As uh, the great superhero author William Butler Yeats says, character isolated by a deed. And you can do that in this game, but it's hard because there's so much probabilistic optimizing that the game wants you to do in order not to actually lose your big superhero fight. And because... There are so many multi-stage fighting aspects. I, I think I warned you, Fiona, when we were getting ready for this, that I was going to use the phrase hit point piñata. <laughs> I believe, yes, that was mentioned. Is, is this where I get to talk about hit point piñatas? Uh, you, you may. I mean, I wasn't stopping you before. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't have to roll for it. So, you know, I like D&D. I don't hate it. And it's also not my favorite. And my favorite thing about D&D is just the sheer wealth of menus for things that your character can learn to do, especially if you've picked a character that lets you use those menus. And my least favorite thing about D&D is that combat situations when you're playing Dungeons & Dragons often end up where in order to win the fight, you have to do the same thing 10 times. You are fighting the undead. You have eight different kinds of spells and two weapons, but the undead are uniquely vulnerable to fire and the other things you can do don't work against zombies. So you cast fireball and then you cast fireball again and then you cast fireball again. And each time the zombie giant lion loses five hit points and eventually it's down to zero hit points and then you move on. I hate that. It's boring. It is something that combat heavy games ideally should find a way to avoid. I feel like it's very difficult to avoid the hit point pinata problem in Sentinels because it's built into the character. Like good GMing in D&D and good GMing in Champions, which we've seen Fiona do, hi Fiona, <laughs> can avoid that problem by giving you other ways out. And because your character so often is good at one thing and okay at others and the others are a D6 and you don't want to do that unless someone else is boosting you, you're kind of stuck doing the same thing several turns in a row in order to clear the scene and check off the box. And that's a problem I have with the kind of combat that this game wants. And it's, it's also a problem I have with the kinds of superhero comics, which 
lots of people like where Wolverine just keeps slashing people until they're all slashed to ribbons. And then he says, I'm the best there is at what I do. So what's interesting to me hearing you say that, and I remember you bringing up specifically in that last scene when, you know, Mona was like, I got to get rid of the bots that are erasing my love's life work from the timeline. And, you know, understandable motivation. What's interesting to me is that it feels like Sentinel Comics should have the tools to address this. You know, as you go from the green to the yellow to the red, you are in theory getting newer, more powerful abilities. As the environment is taking its turn and as minor twists are happening, in theory, the situation can be changing. And so it feels like the tools are there. And I think some of the questions is, is this a familiarity thing to to use them a little bit more? Or maybe they're not. And maybe it just comes down to, yeah, actually, you just want to be hitting the same ability every time. CCR Ian, I'm curious if if you felt the same way that, that Steph did in that kind of like, I'm just doing the same thing. I would say yes, largely as a function of, archetypically, Holm was a marksman. He was supposed to be using his bow to solve like 98% of the problems that he was faced with. But in our first scene, we our primary antagonist was Lava. And no matter how many arrows I shot at Lava, that was not going to solve the problem. So I was really hemmed into, I had maybe two abilities on my sheet that did not have to do with shooting things with arrows really good. And they were not in the green zone. So early in the fight, early in that scene, Holm is just kind of running around, investigating things. He's not using his abilities. And in some ways that pushed the scene forward, but in some ways also that created a ton of minor twists that then like further complicated the scene and and sort of made that scene longer and maybe more complicated than we originally intended. So I, I definitely felt that and, and maybe almost the opposite of that, wherein if I had the one thing that I could do that would affect the scene, I would probably have done that. But in lieu of that, I was just kind of casting around for anything that he could do to affect the scene because a lot of his abilities were kind of put together around that very particular archetype. I will also say, I'm really curious about the role of failure in this game. I don't think that we super succeeded very often, but I also don't think we failed very often. And I don't think there was ever a real danger of us falling off the end of the scene track. But I'm really curious what that would look like, because I feel like Steph's comments were kind of inspiring me to think about what are my favorite fight scenes in superhero comics and do they fit this archetype? Would they be well served by being simulated by the system? And I'm thinking of like the the Dark Phoenix saga where Jean defeats the X-Men kind of like all at once. And this is a huge display of her power. Mm-hmm. But it's also the super tragic moment of the team being turned against itself. And I don't think that could work in Sentinel comics because despite it being a very affecting scene and also fundamentally a fight scene, a combat scene, because it relies on failure. And I feel like the system has so many steps in place to make sure you don't get to that point that like I kind of wonder if if it misses out on the opportunity to tell stories that are centered around the potential failure of the superhero team like early in the story, like in in act one of three. Yeah, no, that's that's just an interesting point because in some ways, the stakes should only get that high kind of at the end rather than kind of at the beginning. And, and yeah, I mean, we, we got some major twists, and I think that that maybe that's that's kind of like almost a fail-forward way of doing it is to kind of get in, in there with the, the major twist. But All right. Well, I think we should close out the letters page and because uh, we got a little bit more show to do. Well, first, we do always ask the question, how did this game make you feel like a superhero? Ian, as 
someone clearly playing a superhero in this situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously I'm playing a non-traditional character. I think that this, the environment stuff, you know, we've talked about problems with it. You know, the timer felt weird in our brains. It maybe extended the scene too long. But I think it did a really good job of, like, creating a situation where you felt like you had to do disaster control. For all we said that this is a game about fighting, it did a pretty good job of letting us address non-fighting problems in a fairly dynamic way where the twist system did lead to fun and interesting twists on things. Mm -hmm. uh, now there are lava worms. Do we fight the lava worms or are they just chilling and we let them rock? Like it, it, it sort of let you create a very evolving scene in a natural way. I think, I think that those moments were good and those can be hard to do in other settings without a lot of planning. I couldn't imagine what you'd have to do to make that sort of evolving scene work in Hero System, for example. Yeah, and I think that the, one of the things that, that really I find appealing about this game and, and sort of what it makes my brain happy is to be able to take some of those narrative things and put a mechanic on them very quickly and in the moment of, okay, the twist is now, you know, we're getting some of the save me's or whatever. Like, okay, what's we can have a mechanical effect on this by by this, you know, this hinder if you're kind of doing, doing this thing. Cece, why did you feel like a superhero? I would say the moment that felt most super heroic for Holm was the moment where we got the major twist that his going viral on the news had put his, basically his debtors, the people who he had upset by the stealing of his artifact back on his trail. It felt like a moment that would occur in a superhero comic where you wouldn't figure out the import of that moment for, you know, maybe three or four issues. But then later when it came up, you'd be like, oh, hey, back in issue two, that's the moment when this happened. <laughs> yeah, that felt like a superhero story in a way that was really satisfying. How about you, Steph? When did you feel like a superhero with Mona? I mean, the most superhero feeling and the most here is a plot with that I could really, you know, sink my teeth into and really inhabit this character who wants to do superhero things was in that final scene where the time traveling cat people had to be stopped from destroying B's life work. That felt like a really satisfying plot twist. Mm -hmm. I think I'm very much on the same page as 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 Cece here in terms of what you know what what Holm got where the plotting of our adventure had act one and two set up act three and really speak to the character's backstory. And that was great. But that just tells me that I like being in games that Fiona's running. <laughs> I mean, I guess the part of it involving Holmes came about as a result of rolling minor twists, but that didn't really feel set up by the system. If, if we're trying to, to look at Sentinel Comics as a system, rather than just saying that was a cool story that took place in New Arcadia with our characters, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look at the character sheet because the again and, and Champions makes such a good contrast here. The decisions that the system wants me to make about what my character is going to do are not so much decisions about what power to use as decisions about sort of what move comes with what kinds of dice. And, okay, I felt super heroic and I felt like the system contributed to that when I was able to figure out what was going on from a distance with the crystal time machine in the office building. Uh -huh. And then my teammates were able to deal with that time machine. That was cool. But I don't know that 
I think this is the first game that we've played on the show where I can't point to a part of the system mechanic that made me feel more superheroic in play. I can point to character creation parts that I thought were really cool and took me places I would never have gone. Yeah. And and mechanically, my favorite thing about this system is the guided character creation. It's interesting that you say that and 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 I, I I can absolutely see that. You know, this isn't there wasn't a I rolled a fistful of dice and got this great comic book page outcome from it. And I think that just kind of the way things worked out we didn't even really see any like really all-star abilities. Some of the abilities that came out were like, okay, you can hit two people instead of one, or you know, if you get roll doubles, you can do it again, which is like we're cool in the moment, but didn't weren't worthy necessarily of like a full page image, the way that I don't know, like the human slingshot just like fist pounding Professor Markov at the end of Champions. Like Yeah. <laughs> They feel board gamey. The ability to take two actions at once is extremely useful in a board game. Yeah. And the ability to look incredibly cool while you're rescuing the professor rather than just doing it is not terribly useful in a in a board game. <laughs> if I had a maybe an unusual critique, it's that I think this role-playing game is not enough like the board game. In the and here allow me to explain my my thesis here. Please. In the Sentinels of the Multiverse card game, which is a lot of fun, I think it's great. There's like a new collected editions. You don't have to bother with all the expansions. You should, but you don't have to now buy them individually. The way the game works is you get a random environment, a random villain. That works much like it does in this, where they each take their own turns. And then you've got like something like in the base game, 15 unique heroes, which all have their own unique decks with no cards shared between any of them. And the game is very good at distinguishing each hero from the other. The Iron Man riff installs like modules onto his armor as his cards, and then he purges them to install new ones depending on the situation. The temperature character wants to alternate between hot and cold to regulate his own temperature. The speedster character like rips through the deck really quickly and draws and plays a bunch of cards. So the mechanics reinforce the hero powers and they feel very distinct from each other, which is a really cool feeling and it's hard to do in the design. That must have been a lot of work to think of that many unique characters. Where the game shines is the way they interact with each other. So maybe you buff, a, you say, every time you play a card, deal a damage to an opponent, and you give that to the speedster, and now the speedster gets to go off on their turn, and you've created this power interaction. Or you have an ability that says, change the element of an attack to the element of your choosing, and you give that to the temperature person, and now they're able to do cool combos by routing their power through your power. It feels like when you're playing the card game, all of the characters are interacting with each other to optimize, because it's cooperative. I think that by making all these characters standalone and by hiding a lot of your abilities, you know, behind the scene tracker, we got these sequences where it's like, boy, I kind of have a cool power to call down death on someone to give a bonus to my ally, but not for a while. And I can't do that. And then that doesn't actually interact with Holmes's um, time telling powers for some reason. It just felt like nothing linked up in the same way where the sheer joy of the card game itself is how well everything links up. That is an absolute excellent set of points and it's it it feels kind of strange because we we think of rpgs as this is you know anything can happen right this is the wide open space but i think that again perhaps because sentinel comics is condensing things down into this you know someone brought up fate right it's like a couple of these basic actions and sort of like the mechanisms are have to be very general and in this case kind of you know somewhat simple that yeah, you you lose those big swings that you get out of the out of the card game. That, 
And yeah, I would absolutely recommend the definitive edition, especially if you've played the earlier edition of Sentinels and were like lukewarm on it, the definitive edition fixes a lot of it. Everything plays much more smoothly. Tachyon is drawing way more cards. <laughs> it's real good. Let's go to ongoing retcons and spinoffs. And again, this is kind of a bit of a round robin thing where we'll start with ongoing. What is a part of this game that you would like to see more of that we didn't get to in our actual play? But you'd like to kind of keep keep going. If, if you were to come back to Sentinel Comics, what do you want to plumb the depths of? Uh, Cece, why don't you go first? I think I was really excited in character creation by the fact that we get two principles which guide our character and their growth. And I thought that that was a great move, partly because it avoids the kind of God I love Rubik's Cube kind of problem of like, there's one thing that you're trying to do and everything has to relate to that as far as like your one arc. I think if we were going to return to this game, I would be interested in trying to look actively for ways for my two principles to interact with one another in a way that would be totally impossible in a system, even a Powered by the Apocalypse system. And I, I love me a Powered by the Apocalypse system, but a system in which there's one arc that your character is undergoing and everything that changes about your character has to relate to that one arc. So I think that's what I would try to explore. Cece, I hadn't seen it that way. That's really, really insightful. The, the two principle thing is is something I would want to import to other systems. If we were going to do more in the system and play more in the system, one thing I would want to do would just to be using the boost mechanic more and to see more literal team up moves. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would want to see, and that is something that is, you know, up to the GM, but I have a feeling it's something that we would see if we were going to come back and, and, and play this again, is weird-ass environments, environments that really, when they take a turn, it's it means you're running out of oxygen or, like, the pit of hell opens beneath you or the angels descend or the cloud creatures are going to show up in, in mass. Environments that really play a role in, in combat situations in a way that is consistently hard to predict, at least at the outset. Ian? An ongoing for you. I think I was um, pretty enamored. I don't know. I I was I wrote this down beforehand. Then we talked about the environment tracker, and I got mad about it. And now I'm back to liking it a little. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wild swings. I think on its core, though, giving the environment a turn to do things, regardless of a timer, is very cool. It's so easy to just have fights, to have scenes take place. You know, in 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 the theater of the mind. In in a forest, in a city street where there's nothing like active happening and you can sort of forget that the environment even matters. I really like that it's an active participant to help the player, to hinder the player, to add new complications, to add new characters into the scene. I think that because that's codified into the rules, it sort of forces the players and the GMs to think about something that, that's easy to not think about. I like any game that sort of makes you, yeah, you're sort of reassessing what matters and then you're thinking about where you can bring that in in games even when you're not using the system because you realize... Oh, that was like really fun and really cool. My ongoing, I think, is to do more with villains. We were kind of getting a little against the clock with Captain Blep there. And, uh, you know, the pacing gets better every run, I, I hope. But to have a villain who who seems maybe a little insurmountable at first until you unlock some of those other abilities or a villain who's able to, to call out a bunch of minions to come help them. 
but but someone who's got like a just like that just that big silver age personality and just some big swings i i think this game can do it and I, i'd like to have the time and space to uh to kind of go wild with that i would specifically like to see captain blep again <laughs> She's gone, but LT is is trapped in your timeline. Uh, so we'll we'll see what what happens with that. Uh, all right, now retcon. Uh, how would you? What is a thing that you would approach differently doing this again? Uh, Steph, why don't we start with you? Boosts. I would listen to all of you do math and encourage my teammates to boost and use the boost action and try and take advantage of the probability mechanics that as a, a you know, someone just trying to figure out emotionally what Mona would do kind of ignored more than with a lot of games that we play that is a question that really bifurcates into what would I do differently next time I play this game if I play the system again and what would I fix about the system if you know, the company that makes it asked me what what to change mm-hmm. so that's my answer for what would I do differently as a player? What would I do differently if I were asked to tweak the system? I think I think I would just make the game feel less tactical. I think I would make it easier to get a success out of using the power that you wanted to use mm-hmm. so that you weren't locked into fights that took longer than the story beats required as you are right now. Ian, do you have a retcon? I think during character creation, I was sort of stuck on the idea that that the power you have matches logically to the action you're taking. So what I mean here is that like, if I have an attack, the attack should be something that I can imagine myself attacking with, shape-shifting, fire control. It wasn't until I saw Cece's character start using banter as an attack that I thought, yeah, I could have had precognition as a power and used that as an attack and then justified it in the narrative. It's like knowing where they're going to be or, you know, casting the bones. And so I think I think I would should have allowed myself more flexibility in the powers and qualities and gone less for what are the things on here that are probably witchy enough to count and more for like, here's what I want to be and then I will make this work sort of in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Cece, retcon. You know, it's interesting. I think I, I might be retconning in the opposite direction. I think <laughs> when I was creating Horatio, I put all of my effort into choosing powers and qualities that had no overlap with one another because I felt like these are two different opportunities to define the character. But for the majority of my abilities, I needed to use a quality. And I only actually had one quality that felt like it spoke to Holm using this artifact to enhance his combat abilities, which was otherworldly mythos. My other qualities were banter, criminal underworld info, and damn it, Holm. Damn it, Holm. None of which super came in handy and felt a little bit... They didn't feel like the things that the ability should be hung on. So I think in thinking through my next character concept for this game, I would either create a character who is supportive in their backstory of having two sort of different threads, powers and qualities to their character, Mm -hmm. or just thinking about maybe the ways in which those two need to overlap in order for it to feel like the abilities that that character has are stemming from the right parts of their backstory. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the things that is, you know, we we didn't get to this in, in in the origin story, but but there is kind of this key because you're always doing a power and you're always doing a quality, you do want to make sure that you have one of each just kind of going into it that makes sense for like, okay, my character's gonna be doing these things. I know which power it is, 
do have to make sure that there is a quality that also feels about the same applicability. Which is where I started with home having the a bit the quality of persuasion. So I thought he might be kind of a fast talker. Maybe he kind of is a bit of a jokester and he can get himself out of things. But then I was actually trying to fill in the blanks on my character sheet and saying, he can't attack with persuasion. Like, not as a marksman. Like, nothing about the way that you're interacting with a character socially should affect your ability to shoot an arrow out of a bow. So then I ended up changing it to banter and having it be a little bit more vicious mockery style of he's maybe using banter to distract someone such that he can line up the shot, which made a little more sense. Yeah. And we get, we got that lovely recurring thing of of him getting people to move where he wants them to by mm-hmm. shooting the arrows. Exactly. I, I I really love that. I really love these characters. I want to see these characters <laughs> again. I you know, you know look. I, I said this in our mundane supernatural life that Fiona wants to do things again that didn't go well. Right? <laughs> like I I want. I mean, again, this was great. Like we had a good time. But again, we just talked about all of these ways that's like, huh, there are challenges in here. I want to solve challenges. I want to see what's, you know, I want to keep going. So, yeah. But I, I should do a retcon here. So I think that probably with some of the minor twists, maybe more willing to just hit you with damage. It's it's quick. It doesn't bog down the scene. It also starts getting you closer to those yellow and red abilities. Like, it's actually damage is good. Yeah. Kind of yeah. at the beginning. And so I think I might take an, an, you know, maybe a little bit of a snappier approach on some of those minor twist things and, and, and see if the action scene would play a little bit smoother. The other thing I think I would do is I think the action scenes do work best when it is villain and stuff to fix. The first scene being mostly stuff to fix and until Flame Jane came in. That gives you a chance to say like, oh, okay, there is something that I could use a really good ability for that maybe has an action economy of like, okay, I can hit the villain and also boost my allies with a min die that they can use to do something else. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the scenes need to have a sort of a potpourri of, of different things going on. All right, finally, spinoffs. What parts of this game would you want to to take elsewhere in, in or see in other games? Uh, Ian, you get to go first. I'm actually going to pick this uh, guided character creation. I had a character I wanted to play. I ended up making a character randomly, and I still really like the character I ended up with. And I like the characters everyone else brought to the table, too, which is pretty impressive considering no one, none of us really sat down and concepted them, right? I don't need the full mechanics, like, from start to finish, pick these abilities and these stats in every game. But I'd like it if more games offered a way to guide the player through a background, a power source, what their powers express as, their personality. I think that's good for new players who like in Hero System, likely feel overwhelmed by the 600 pages of characters and power descriptions. <laughs> and it's good for experienced players who get to in their own heads about what character they want to play, and what type of character they want to play, and might lead them in new and exciting directions that sort of make them say, oh, I've never thought about playing a character like this, but now I've got something uniquely my own to try out. Steph, a spinoff. Ian basically said it. Yoink. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Ian really got it. That's my favorite part of this game mechanically. Another thing that I like about this game that we haven't seen before that maybe is also a little bit board gamey is the physical experience of having a whole bunch of dice. (laughs) The idea that here's a D12 and here's a D8 and you can do the probability math, but you also just get the physical experience of figuring out what to roll and trying to figure out what the numbers are going to be. I keep mentally comparing this game to Champions. I would much rather be rolling a D12 and a D8 and a D4 
than rolling every single six-sided die that I have in my house. 12d6. (laughs) (laughs) And the idea that the probabilities of different actions change and that's physically reflected in what you're rolling, I thought that was cool. I will respond by saying that I would much rather roll 12d6s, but I would much rather count three. (laughs) (laughs) Then you have to calculate the body. (laughs) Cece, what's a a spinoff for you? For this game? I think maybe ironically, it's something that I, I don't know that we actually took that much advantage of while we were playing ourselves, but I really like the receptiveness of the system to reskinning the moves and also that element of the, again, the, the unique quality that you can add to your character to make sure it feels like you have that thing that you need that's missing. Mm-hmm. I, I think there is a kind of flexibility that's at least encouraged on paper in the system to make sure that you have these moments of feeling like you can customize while still maintaining the sense of simplicity and the sense of universality about these moves and the way that they balance with one another. And I, and I do think that's cool. I think sometimes, especially in games like this that are kind of like halfway up the crunch spectrum, I lean too hard into, um, well, I just got to go with what's on the page. And I think there's a, a kind of a beautiful flexibility that's built in by make sure that your character has one quality that's unique to them and you can rename any of her moves so that narratively you can understand how your character is doing this thing. I, that's a kind of flexibility I feel like I should, I should bring to more games that are this level of crunch. Crunch. Yeah. And actually, I'm so, so glad you mentioned that last piece. Yeah. Because I don't think we have it yet. You can rename your moves. You're, you're told to rename your moves. And uh, it, it, I love it. It feels, it feels really good. My spinoff is, I mentioned this before, but the, those, the minions and lieutenants just being a single die. Yeah, I can't imagine, you know, like when I, when I'm DMing Dungeons and Dragons and it's like, oh, I want to pull some things in. And it's like, all right, I need a minimum. I don't actually need a stat block, but I do need some hit points and some armor class and like how much damage and sort of like those types of things, like it gets to be a lot. And so the way that you can really be more improvisational and just come up with cool things on the fly and and represent them mechanically with die sizes like that. Yeah. I love that. And, and especially again with a superhero game where it's like, yeah, there's the, there is the big villain who is more powerful than you. And so you need a team of people to take them down. But like those minions if they fail their role, they're just gone, right? You just knock them out. You just took care of them. Because you know what? You're superheroes. You're pretty <laughs> powerful. So to be able to represent that in this was, again, I, I do like that. And, and for other games, I'm always going to be looking like, do they have minions who are as easy to make as Sentinel Comics? You know, we'll see. Okay. I think that brings our diving into the mechanisms of Sentinel Comics, the role-playing game, to a close. So now it's time for back issues. Stephanie, what comic book stories match with Sentinel Comics? I mean, there's the less interesting answer and there's the weird answer you get from me. (laughs) Well, that's why you're a co-host. Let's have the weird Uh, one. (laughs) Okay. Um, No, I'm going to have to give them both to be true to the game. Yeah, fair. The, The less interesting answer is that there are many, many stories going back to, you know, Golden Age comics, 1940s comics in which a team of heroes must defeat dastardly foes describing their powers as they go. And we get a look at, you know, our man's powers and Dr. Fate's powers. And there are, you know, five million of those. And the sort of, you know, vanilla team-on-team combat stories, there's a lot of Justice League stories that do that. And, and, And that's fine. 
the aspects of this game that stand out beyond that are the way in which the environment gets a turn and the environment matters and weird environments work like characters in the game and the way in which you can end up, as we sort of did, with a number of heroes who, like, what are they doing together? Mm -hmm. How did they come together? How is this a team? And for the first one, I'm going to say the uh, 80s storyline in X-Factor and New Mutants called Inferno in which the entire city of New York gets transformed by a hell dimension. And not only do they have to fight the bad guys, but they have to fight carnivorous mailboxes and malevolent department store mannequins because (laughs) the city of New York, everything in New York is trying to kill you. And I mean, Inferno is a wonderful story to read anyway, but it, it would it's something that this system would be good at simulating in a way that the other systems that we've seen on this show would not. The 2016 Marvel set of miniseries and maxi series called Secret Wars, in which every single thing in the Marvel comic universe gets destroyed and recreated as a zone with its own unique and dramatically interesting conditions on a planet called Battleworld, so that there is a sort of super 90s zone and a Howard the Duck comical zone and a sort of Asgard like zone. A lot of the miniseries that came with Secret Wars, and in fact, Secret Wars itself, where the heroes have to team up to figure out how the environment has been shaped by heroes and villains. I'd recommend that. And then the the third thing I'm going to recommend doesn't feel like a game of Sentinel Comics, but it shares the aspect of here are a whole bunch of heroes who really each one seems like a protagonist, and what are they possibly doing together? And how are they going to explore the world that they're in? And it does end up with a whole bunch of team on team fights, but it's very, very strange and fun. A lot of the 1970s issues of the comic Defenders, if you know the TV series, this is not that. This is a series initially written by a guy named Steve Gerber and later by Jam DeMattis and a couple other people. And the the Gerber and DeMattis runs are the famous ones. And it's got the Hulk and Doctor Strange and Valkyrie and the Beast and a couple other people with wildly varying origins and power levels, one of whom is literally the son of Satan, and they simply don't belong on the same team, but <laughs> there they are. There's some great stuff in there. Yes. Ian, you had you had some some things you wanted to bring up as well, right? Continuing my, my streak so far of every time I'm on this show, recommending a completely unrelated video game, but Sentinels of the Multiverse is basically City of Heroes, the 2002-ish uh, arena net multi-multiplayer online role-playing game. Uh, And in this system, it feels like that. You pick a power source, you pick a power expression, you pick a background, you spend two hours in their highly intricate costume creator, and then you do riffs on 60s team battles for the next 400 hours. (laughs) It, It just felt like the powers level up and express themselves in similar ways. The sort of fun of that game was getting together with people and having these big team fights against big raid bosses and going on all these missions it really felt like a game that loved superheroes and loved the same kind of superheroes that the Sentinels properties are reproducing. Unfortunately, the servers are gone and there's definitely no legal way to play that game. Wink, wink. But I think that in spirit, in in mechanics, it, it, I don't know, I, I was just getting major throwback vibes to playing uh, City of Heroes growing up. Excellent. Well, the internet exists and search engines exist if you want to see what is possible out there with that game. All right, so that is Sentinel Comics, the role-playing game. 
Ian and Cece, thank you so much for coming back on Team Up Moves, and thank you for playing and talking about this game with us. Now, there is a particular challenge now that we're in November 2022 of this world. How are people going to find you online? <laughs> Let's start with you, Ian. What are you up to out there? What are all of the links that folks should have in case some of them don't work anymore by the time they hear this? Uh, I'm Fission Mail, Fission, M-A-L-E, on Twitter. May it rest in peace. Who knows if that's that's going to be comically outdated by the time this episode releases. But you can also just find me on XF. That's where most of my bylines are. And... I made a Mastodon account today. If you want to find me at Ian Gregory at Mastodon.lol. I did. Who knows if I'll actually use it or if Mastodon will collapse under its own server weight by the time this podcast comes out. (laughs) I follow you. Oh, you do. Thank you. According to Mastodon, no one follows me because the servers are so crashed by Twitter refugees that uh, I'm unable to load (laughs) any toots. Oh, no. Oh, no. Cece, how about you? Where are you out there? I am at Mancuso Sci-Fi on Twitter. I am also at Mancuso Sci-Fi at Dice.Camp on Mastodon, if that is indeed the better option moving forward. And I think, relatively speaking, I'm going to be more active on Mastodon moving forward. So that's probably the best way to stay up to date with any random hot takes I might have about this or other games. Excellent. Stephanie, we had a good time. We played a game. How it's work? Good things. We did. Uh, I would absolutely do it again. Oh, I should say, since my, I guess my follows have changed, that you can now find me at Accommodatingly with two C's and two M's on Mastodon. You, if that still exists by the time this airs. Yes, check the show notes for the actual server <laughs> that Stephanie is on. <laughs> Zerk.us. There you go. I'm on there too, Fiona Wim Dice Camp. You know, scene trackers in the red. We fell off. So I think that's the end of the episode. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This run, we've been playing Sentinel Comics The Role-Playing Game from Greater Than Games and Critical Hit Studios. You can find more information on their website, greaterthangames.com. We're going to be taking a two-week break, and then we'll be back in January with our run of A City of Shining Stars. This is a superhero world-building game written by Aaron Lim, And let me tell you, pals, we've got an amazing guest to play superhero world-building games, Jeff Stormer, the designer of Anyone Can Wear the Mask and the podcaster of Party of One and All My Fantasy Children. This was an amazing session as Jeff, Stephanie, and I sat down to figure out the alternate reality history of New Arcadia. Because, pals, it's superheroes. We got to have a multiverse somewhere. Team Up Moves is a production of Fiona Hopkins and Stephanie Burt, copyright 2022. You can find us on Twitter as at Team Up Moves and Mastodon as Team Up Moves at Dice.Camp. Fiona is Fiona Wim on Twitter and Fiona Wim at Dice.Camp. And Stephanie is accommodatingly on Twitter and accommodatingly at Zerk.us. Check the show notes for spelling. Our website, which has all of our episodes from all of our runs, as well as the sign-up form for our free email mailing list. This comes out once a month between our runs to give you a little picture of what we're looking at, what we're up to, secret things we've done, setting details about New Arcadia. Pals, it's a lot of fun, and you can sign up at teamupmoves.com, as well as get those sweet, sweet subscribe links so that you do not miss any of the episodes that we put out. Our theme music is Play by Sleepyhead. 
You can find more of their music at sleepyheadrockband.com. Finally, to close out 2022, this has been an amazing first year of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing this show with people who might like it. We're so excited for 2023 and all of the great games and people we're going to be playing them with. So with that, take care, pals. You can't-